Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. When you see a comic, it's like falling in love because you're laughing and it reaches you on this visceral level. And uh, also, when you're, as you know, if you're going to manage a comedian, you're going to see that comedian a thousand times. You're going to go to a lot of shows. So you really have to be in love. But I, I mean, I still cherish going to Jerry Seinfeld's show. I still laugh. It's, it's such a level of, 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 of heartbeat and, and uh, love, you know? Because, you know, comedy, when you laugh that much, it's the, one of the greatest feelings in the history of the world. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am more than excited because I am here with George Shapiro, one of the greatest executive producer managers that I could ever sit across. And, you know, I normally say this reserved for comedians, but if there were a Mount Rushmore for managers, George Shapiro's face would be on it. So let me introduce him properly. He may fall asleep. This might be longer than the cold opening. George Shapiro graduated from NYU with a degree in advertising and marketing and soon after took a job in the famous mailroom at the William Morris Agency in New York. He advanced rapidly within the company and soon became an agent, eventually beginning packaging hit programs such as The Steve Allen Show, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, That Girl, Gomer Pyle starring his client, Jim Neighbors. He also packaged a number of specials for Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Channing. And he later left William Morris to become a personal manager and producer along with his partner and friend Howard West. They formed Shapiro West Productions and executive produced the Emmy, Peabody, and Golden Globe award-winning series, The Mother Load of All Mother Loads, Seinfeld. Shapiro was also known and very, very uh, highly esteemed for managing Andy Kaufman for many, many years. An executive produced his special for Showtime entitled Andy Kaufman at Carnegie Hall and one for ABC, the Andy Kaufman special. He also, with Howard West, was the executive producer of the feature film Man on the Moon starring Jim Carey in the role of Andy Kaufman and Danny DeVito co-starred as a role of George Shapiro for Academy Award winning director Milos Forman. 
an interesting sidebar on uh, Man on the Moon here is that um, that's this is great. Shapiro and West's joint debut as feature film actors as well. George played the role of Mr. Besserman, a club owner who fired Andy Kaufman early in his career, and West portrayed a hard-nosed network executive. Other feature films they produced include Summer Rental, starring John Candy, Sibling Rivalry, starring Kirstie Alley, and Summer School, starring Mark Harmon. On Broadway, George was one of the producers of one of the most amazing shows I've ever seen since I've been watching one person shows, which was Colin Quinn, long story short at the Helen Hayes theater, executive producer of comedians and cars getting coffee, the web series that Jerry does for crackle and executive producer and creator of the Bronx boys still playing at 80 on June 30th, 2012, the comedy world gathered at the Beverly Wilshire hotel in Beverly Hills to honor George and the David Lynch Foundation was thrilled to present him with the first Lifetime of Bliss Award, which he says he received from practicing the transcendental meditation technique for 28 years. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce the man, the myth, the legend, George Shapiro. Well, thank you very, very, very much. That was... Uh Barry Katz is not a, at a loss for words. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about you now. <laughs> Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking fire. Firing me up, cats. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So, George, what I like to do on these podcasts is I like to go way, way back. So Way, way back. We're going way, way back. With me, it's way, way back. We're going the way, way back machine. And what I like to do is I like to have you explain to our audience what it was like for you growing up, the atmosphere, how your situation was growing up, and what was the first thing that happened before that to inspire you to get in the entertainment business? Something had to have happened. What were you doing before that? And then how did it all go down? Okay, starting with my childhood, which was uh, in the Bronx, uh, Marshall Parkway and Jerome Avenue, uh, northern part of the Bronx, uh, I went to PS80. As a side note, Ralph Lauren, Ralphie Lifshitz went there, and also Calvin Klein, believe it or not. So Ralph Lauren was Ralph Lifshitz? Lifshitz. Lifshitz. Yes, Ralph Lifshitz. L-I-P-S-E-H-I-T-Z. Ralphie Lifshitz. That's what we called him, Ralphie. And his, his brother, his older brother, was in my class, Lenny Lifshitz. And, uh, also, and, and, and Calvin Klein went to PS80. Gary Marshall, Penny Marshall, uh, Robert Klein... So it was a very good water in that school. And uh, it was uh, a sort of the uh, foundation of my life, having very close friends. I have friends in kindergarten that I'm still in touch with that from five years old. In fact, uh, you mentioned the, the Bronx Boys. I did a special with my partner, Howard West. He was a newcomer. I, I, he, he was my new friend. I met him at age eight because he was <laughs> transferred to the school. And uh, the rest of them... Uh, were five, and we had a very rich 
rich f- friendship. All of us, fifteen of us, I did the, fir- the first Bronx Boys uh, special, which was when we were turned seventy, and uh, uh, that fiber of friendship just stayed with us. We played ball, we played basketball, we played stickball, we played touch football. Uh, we went to the movies on Saturdays, which is an influence because that's where I loved comedy. I fell in love with comedy with uh, Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, and you know the Marx Brothers, uh, Ritz Brothers, all of them. There was just an incredible feeling of friendship and belonging when you have that many friends. Then uh, I went to Dewitt Clinton High School. Bud Friedman went there. He, he was there at the same time as me, but ran the improv. You know, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, relationships. Did you, and, did, yeah. and it's just like the relationships. When you say to me that you are still friendly with people that you went to kindergarten with and your partner in business you met when you were eight years old, yes. there's no greater relationship and no greater ex- example of how relationships can take you to the next level and what they mean in your life. You are so right. And Howard, uh, we, we, yeah, we're eight years old. He was a a new kid in school. He was just sitting around by himself. And I told him to join us to play some basketball, stickball. So he, he joined our group and we became partners first with comic books. You know, we chipped in for comic books. We shared the comic books. Later on, we bought a car together the cream puffer was called. We put a lot of maintenance into it, money. And then we were lifeguards together at Tamament, which is going to answer part of your question about my connection with show business. Tamament was a, a resort in the, and then, uh, then a uh, resort in the uh, Pocono Mountains. And the Catskills? Then, no, this is the Pocono. Pocono okay. This was a different thing. It was a different setup because the, the Catskills was completely about stand-up comics. The Poconos, uh, this place called Tamament, it's called Camp Tamament, a young adult type of uh, resort. And uh, the uh, uh, structure of uh, the uh, entertainment was created by Max Liebman well, well before the time I went there. And that led to the show of shows. He put on a review, an original review every week. He had, he had a, a comedy writers. He had composers. He had a choreographer. He had singers and dancers. You know, and, and the comics did sketch comedy as well as stand-up comedy. And he did this original thing every week for the purpose of if the same crowd came back over and over Good. again, they well, would... You're so smart. Yes, because every Sunday, a new crowd would come up. So they would do the show, rehearse all week, and present the show Saturday night. And then the and they would repeat it Sunday when the new crowd came up. Then the, So the new crowd would see two complete... Uh, reviews, total original reviews, original music, uh, original comedy writing. And in the middle, on Wednesday night, they would do like a straight stand-up thing, like an Ed Sullivan show. Everyone would do their own. Dick Sean was up there when I was there, and uh, Pat Carroll, and uh, uh, just a tremendous amount of of talent. Also, as a lifeguard, I worked as a lifeguard, and I brought Howard in. To, to got him a job as a lifeguard, how to teach him to save lives. Just so you know, I, a lifeguard? Worked, I worked as a lifeguard. Oh, it was so funny because I wanted to get through NYU and I had to work as a busboy and a waiter, which is much more lucrative with tips, you know? So when I had enough money, I saw, the, I saw that I could make it with my tuition 
Then I became a lifeguard, the, the, the nice life where you meet girls a little easier. It's sitting a, on, it's a great the, gig. Sitting up on the chair with your pith helmet and your whistle. So, and they say, there's the guard. Look at the guard. The guard's going to go swimming. So I used to jump in and swim like a crazy person, like I was drowning. Of course, at all point, I'd, I'd stand on the chair for a long time and then dive in beautifully. And then I would, my arms would flail and <laughs> They think I was drowning. <laughs> anyway, that's comedy. Anyway, that 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 got, that got a lot of laughs. So Howard and I worked up there. We did a little show. Uh, also, uh, we sang on top of Old Smokey. But we worked as stagehands. Besides being, we were hyphenates, stagehands, ushers, and a lifeguard. Lifeguard, our primary job. <clears throat> but I used to watch. When I was there, Neil Simon called Doc Simon and his brother Danny Simon. Doc and Danny Simon were the, were the head writers, and they wrote sketches every week. They used to come down and chat with us uh, on the waterfront about what girls said to us, what, you know, whatever material they could you know, derive from, from our experiences. Herb Ross, who became a major director, was a choreographer. He did this great movie, Turning Point, with Anne, Anne Bancroft. I and love that, that movie. Yeah, oh, that was... Uh, amazing and uh so they had this incredible staff I, and and we used to see this emerge every week now the the connection with agents agents used to come up on the weekends and these shows were really incredible as you could tell you know by the talent these were all before their careers really got underway but jerry bach you know, um, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof and Larry Holofsena, Mr. Wonderful. The, these were the young writer composers that worked up there. So the shows were amazing. And uh, so the agents came up on the weekend and they used to chat and talk to their potential clients, as, you know, singers and dancers. And I used to put them in a rowboat or a canoe when I was a lifeguard. I said, this is your job. I said, you come up here, you hang out with these beautiful singers and dancers and and this is what you do for a living? And I said, I have to get, I have to look into that. So when I graduated co college, there was this thing of, of the uh, Korean conflict, they called it. So I was, I had to go into the army, you know, for, for, for two years. Mm -hmm. So when I got out of the army, I, uh, I, I went to graduate school for a little bit at NYU. And then uh, I had a, I was offered two jobs. I mean, went, I tried to get a job at the William Morris Agency in the mailroom. And my brother also offered me a job. The mailroom job was $38 a week minimum wage, the worst negotiation of my career. Because <laughs> I said, I asked the office manager, is that, is that the minimum wage? He said, exactly. <laughs> exactly the minimum wage. So, and my brother offered me $200 to be a salesman. 200 uh, a week. It, it, you know, 200 a week. As, and that was a draw against commission. If I sold stuff on the road in, uh, you know, El Paso, you know, Texas, Arizona. But I just saw de the death of a salesman. And I, I, death of a salesman with the salesman, you know, sell, trying to sell goods that didn't work out. I, so I had these, these dreams of me being on the road, knocking on doors. I have samples. Do you want to see them? No. And I'm walking down a dusty road in Texas. So I said, I better stay at William Morris, work in the mailroom and work my way up to, you know, be a, an assistant and an agent. That's, that's the route I took. You took a job <laughs> for like, you know, 20, 25% of maybe it was 15 to 20% of what the salary was in the other gig. Precisely. Because you knew that what you loved was entertainment. It was total passion, total passion. So how, now this is an interesting thing for our audience. Cause I always like to talk about this. 
you're in the mailroom. It's well documented, the William Morris mailroom. There are a lot of people in that mailroom. A lot of people trying to get to the next level, but only a handful ever get to the next level. How did you break through to the next level when so many other other people from the mailroom just went by the wayside? By not looking behind me, just looking in front of me. It's like a, a, a runner. You just see your goal and, and you run at it and... Uh, you, you know, you you run to the finish line. And your goal and I, was to be at that point an assistant or an agent? Well, of course, the big goal is to be an agent. Uh, the, a step is to be an assistant. And when we were in the mailroom, uh, also I had to go with Bernie Brillstein, who I loved. You know, he was there. One of the greatest uh, managers uh, of all time. Ahead of me. And I, I, I just loved him. And I used to deliver mail to him. This is just uh, to show you how naive I was. So I was delivering mail to all the agents. You know, you deliver. So Bernie was an agent at William Morris at the time. He was before not he an agent. A he, no, he. Well, I, I, I thought he was an agent because uh, he was actually. I'll unravel the story. I'm, I'm delivering to all the agents. I go to Bernie Brillstein's office, and he has all these photos there. He has uh, uh, Edward G. Robinson. And he has uh, Sophia Lauren, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. He, the, the Kirk Douglas. So, and I go back to the mailroom. After I deliver mail, I said, Bernie Brillstein has to be the biggest agent in the world. He has all these people. He said, no, he's in publicity. He just got out of the mailroom like three months ago. <laughs> That's how naive I was. And, uh, and then Bernie, had a, then he later you know, became an agent. And, uh, and he, I loved him. Uh, and uh, I'm in his book, you know, Where Did I Go Right? Because I picked him up at the airport when he came out to L.A. And he always said... You're smarter than a lot of these people, you know. He he blazed the trail because he he was successful at William Morris. He he wanted to become a personal manager and a producer. You know, Lorne Michaels was one of his first clients. Uh, Jim Henson. Uh, he, he writes in the book about Jim Henson because he he, could, he he couldn't connect with him. He thought he was losing him as a client. That's one of the things I loved about Bernie's book. It was so authentic. Because yeah. I knew so much of the material, and when you know the story and you know it's accurate, it's a great feeling. And that's one of the so, that's one of the things, Joe. When I asked him, I asked him, "Tell me all the geniuses that you worked with in your lifetime," and he told me that he only worked with one genius. And I said that that's impossible. I mean, you, there are so many people that I think you work with who are geniuses. He said, "No." He said, "No, kid, only one genius." I said, "Who was it?" You know. Lauren, Gilda, Belushi. He said, no, kid, Jim Henson. Right. That's interesting. Well, Jim was a genius, and that was, that was his first client. But uh, Gilda Radner in the world of comedy and Belushi, you know, I mean, they, he had some incredible people. And also, you know, it was fun producing. And he, he blazed the trail. Bernie Brillstein gave me my first opportunity as a producer with, you know, the John Candy movie, uh, you know, Summer Rental, that Carl Reiner directed. You know, and Carl was my client, and uh, he still is, 92 and a half, going strong. He is going strong. He has two books coming out now. You know, he just Incredible. Did, he just did a, uh, he was on Conan O'Brien, he did a selfish year. I have to show you the picture. He created the selfish. He's 92 and a half years old, creating new material 
he, he, he said, take this picture, but put me in the background. You're the, you, you know, the one that takes the picture will upstage the other guy. I'll show you the picture. So there's a beautiful picture of Conan with his hair and everything else. There's like a half a picture of Carl in the, sort of in the background. And that, that's called the selfish and not a selfie. The, the selfish. <laughs> the selfish. So, and then they showed it on the air and it got the biggest laugh and applause by, the, by his audience. That's so great. I'm so proud that you know the guy is that. That's one of the great things about what a racket. As Jerry says, when we're flying out of Las Vegas or someplace, what a racket, showbiz. It's incredible. I am so fortunate. I thank God every day that I, that that we found it, and you too. Well, I mean, even I though you have you're more you have more humility than me. Well, I I think that when you say we're fortunate and we are fortunate in the sense that we get to fly all around these places and then we we go to a hotel in vegas and they put us up in this amazing suite and and you're looking around you can't believe that you're you're in the suite and uh or you can't believe the lifestyle you get to be around but the fact is is you don't get to be around that lifestyle if you're not around people who create content that's extraordinary and if you don't i don't care if you're in music or magic or comedy or whatever it is the material has to be extraordinary for you to be fortunate and you're not going to rally around somebody who's doing mcdonald mcnugget jokes and expect to be staying at a suite at the Wynn hotel with your client you can't be with somebody who's doing uh shit and and sex jokes and have them working at the coliseum in vegas it's not going to happen and so we are fortunate but we're fortunate in a way that we probably have identified certain artists that we believe the people in the world will have respect for and want to uh, share their experiences that they how they present them on stage and that's why i think we're, we're fortunate well it's, well it's very well put and also i use this analogy because apropos to what you're saying connecting you know with with the right kind of people and also it's a question of your believing in them now i feel that the world of comedy uh especially when you're dealing with you know comedians uh, I, I i i uh, draw the analogy to falling in love uh, you see a comedian for the first time and he tickles you. Like, I mean, I, when I saw Andy Kaufman and uh, it was so unusual and, and Jerry Seinfeld and, uh, and, and there's another comedian, Dennis Wolfberg, who unfortunately oh. died early. He was a, one of my best friends in the, in the world. I just helped, his ki- I helped put his kids through, through college and with the help of Jerry, who did a ben- Jerry and Jay, Jay Leno, you know, did this, and uh, Paul Reiser and George Wallace did this beautiful benefit to start him off, and I finished him off on the career. They all graduated. Uh, I just want you all in the audience to Google, go on YouTube, Dennis Wolfberg, one of idea. the most unique and engaging and fun and exciting voices in comedy. And I always remember one thing about Dennis Wolfberg. He was a, a comedian who planted, and I don't want you to lose that thought where you're going. Please don't lose that thought. I got it. He was a comedian that planted his feet and stood in front of the mic stand and the mic 
rarely took it out of the mic, and he had this thing, which was amazing. If you can imagine holding a hairbrush or a microphone, he'd take the part of his hand where the thumb is in between the forefinger, and he'd press it against the side of the mic, and then he'd take the other hand and do the same thing, and he'd have his hands out folded over one another prone straight out and he talk into the mic like that like he was making like the wings of a swan or something <laughs> That's right. and it was normally i would tell any comedian in the world do not create a distraction on stage with your hands or the microphone or the mic stand but it was his signature kind of thing and he used to wear like a Celtics jacket a lot of times. And I guess I related to him about that. He was incredible. And uh, the fact that you managed him, uh, to use an expression that I've heard before, uh, before I heard that, I had a tremendous amount of respect for you. After I heard that, you're my hero. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I, I, apropos to what I, I was saying, when you see a comic, it's like falling in love because you're laughing and it reaches you on this visceral level. And uh, also, when you're, as you know, if you're going to manage a comedian, you're going to see that comedian a thousand times. You're going to go to a lot of shows. So you really have to be in love. It's just like when you get married to the right woman, you might, you, let, you allow her to repeat herself, you know. But I, I mean, I still cherish going to Jerry Seinfeld's show. I still laugh at the little nuances he adds. And it's, it's just, and I told Dennis that, you know, luckily I had the... Because he died in his 40s from cancer. He had melanoma. And, and uh, I was able to tell him it's like falling in love because it, it's such a level of, 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 of heartbeat and, and uh, love, you know? Because, you know, comedy, when you laugh that much, it's one of the greatest feelings in the history of the world. I mean, I, I mean I'm attracted to it. I mean, some people don't have that connection. That's why I feel very fortunate and I've always just followed my, my passion with who I want to work with. And I was very lucky over the years, you know, working with people, you know, like Carl Reiner and Jerry and, you know, and, and Andy Kaufman and, and, and Dennis. And well, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a joy. And that's why I say, what a business. Have you ever represented anyone in your career that your instincts told you, you know... I probably shouldn't represent this person because I don't feel that love, but I feel they could be really successful or will be successful or are successful. So I am running a business with Howard. Let's go forward and represent this person. Well, I'm trying to think. We were offered some people. Actually, I mean, all, I, had, I don't think I remember... You know, signing someone that I really didn't have a feeling for. Like, uh, I don't want to talk about this, but, you know, when we went into business, maybe I won't mention names. Maybe I will. I have to figure it out. You know, when Howard and I went into business, uh, we, 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 you know, when you work with a big agency, there's a lot of asshole clients because, you know, you're, you're representing selling two, 300 clients at a big agency like William Morris or ICM. When I came to California, I gave him two shots. Got One it. in the mail room and he got impatient, you know, with the salary of when it was bumped up to 40. He was, that was our first raise from 38 to 40. Then he just got impatient and he, he left. And I, I, when I came to California, I, 
I started a rumor that I was being transferred from uh, New York to California because the business was coming out here, all the production. So I came out to California. They listened. You know, somehow it, it caught in the atmosphere that I was coming to California. And I, when I got settled in California, I, I, I got a job for Howard in California. Got so, it. So what happens is when you're going from the mailroom to being an assistant, you're working on somebody's desk. Normally it can be a year. It can be as many as three years. Some people have gone longer before they get a chance to be an agent. And when you become an agent, normally what happens is you start by being a covering agent for a lot of clients, like uh, George is saying, could be as many as 100 to 300 clients. You're looking out for different things or doing yeah. whatever. And then you start signing your own people as you go, but you sometimes you need to get approval before you do it. And then that first client does something that you sign, then they start giving you more autonomy. Exactly. Exactly. So when... I, I, okay, I'll tell you one story. When we shook hands, I said, "No assholes in our." Uh, if we're gonna, okay. One, I was a young agent, just got out of the mailroom. I went, I went to you know Sadie Brown's secretarial school. Bernie Brosin told me to go there because you'll have to learn shorthand to become an assistant. Uh, you know, and, and you're a floating assistant to different agents when their assistant is sick and everything else. So I got when I finally got out of the mailroom, and I was like a very young agent. One of the assignments I had was on a variety show, and Buddy Hackett was booked on that variety show. And uh, um, it was, and it was a taping. I was, I was looking after him, covering him, you know, uh, uh, and it was on a Sunday shoot. And uh, I was down there and I went to, met him in his dressing room and Buddy Hackett said, there's no telephone in here. I have to have a telephone or else I'm not doing the show. I always get a telephone in my dressing room because it was like a temporary kind of a setup there. So I, I, got, I, I said, I'll, I'll get it for you. I said, you have to do the show. Uh, he said, I'm going to go for a walk. I made a call to the telephone company. It's an emergency. I got the producers okay, you know, to have them put the phone in. And and uh, and he said, I'm going for a walk. And when I come back, that phone is here. Or I'm off the show. Now, I, there, there's the end of my job. There's the end of my career that I worked for 13 months in, in the mailroom. And then, you know, like a, a year and a half floating, being an, an assistant. So we, I'm walking with him. My heart is pounding because it could end my career, and I'm just a kid. So we come back, and, and, and there's a, a man from the phone company wiring it up, finishing the wiring. So I'm taking a breath. And he said, there, there better be a dial tone. So he picks it up, and there was a dial tone. He said, okay, and then he ripped the phone off the wall. So I don't think I would want to be Buddy's manager. Now, why he, do you think oh, he did I had that? A, I had a, I have no idea because he... No, but you've been in the business a long time. You've known a lot of different artists. Why do you think Buddy did that to you? I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, he, from what I gather, he was kind of uh, harsh, putting it politely, to a lot of people around him. Also, later on, when I was a full agent, I was working with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, packaging the show, and uh, <clears throat> I was at... Uh, this this disco uh, with him and we were shooting pool and he was really derogatory towards William Morris and everything else because I worked my ass off and I was very proud of what we did and he said buy this yeah he's with William Morris and stinks and all that and, and I have a puke acoustic in my hand I said I'm going to smash you right in the temple and put it in your life so then he said you know you, you have a lot of guts you know he sort of softened up 
But I, but I hated him. Yeah. So he was testing you. I, I don't know. You know, yeah, he was probably. So he ended up liking you, but you ended up hating him because he made your life miserable. Except there's a punchline to this thing. And I mean a punchline. Uh, John Gary was one of our clients. He was a singer, a male singer. They co-headlined, I think it was a Sahara. Him and Buddy. Buddy Hackett and him. Now, Buddy Hackett, for those of you who don't know, which is not well documented... Buddy Hackett was the most successful comedian of the early 50s and was making about $175,000 a week in Las Vegas yes. during that time. Yes. So I went to see him, hating him, and I laughed so hard. This is the power of comedy, ladies and gentlemen. I swear. I, I went with hatred in my heart, and he made me laugh. I fell off my chair laughing, and uh, you know, and, and I felt better about our relationship. Because that is an enhancement of your life when you laugh from your gut, from your heart. It was so amazing. It was absolutely amazing. How great a comedian do you have to be to make somebody laugh who hates you? Yeah, exactly. The power of comedy, my boy. And I'm fortunate because I became friends with Buddy at the end of his life when we did a show called Action together in 1999-2000 with Jay Moore and Ileana Douglas and, and Buddy, I don't know why, he took me under his wing and he was always good to me. He never he was derogatory. He loved you and hated me. That's the truth. He loved you and hated me. <laughs> there was only one time where I saw what you saw. I was at the Upfronts in New York in 1999 and he's in the dressing room. Now the Upfronts are when the networks make the announcements for the television shows. And they just bring the cast out, and then you you uh, leave, and you just take a bow. But they want to announce people. And he was wearing this nice suit, and I just went up to him. People do as friends do. Tie was a little bit off, and I just went to reach for his tie and straightened it out. And he looked at me with that way he talked, and he was like, Don't ever fucking touch me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and I thought he was joking, but he wasn't joking. But then a minute later, he apologized. It's very important what you said, because you showed that you as a manager or an agent, how you were thrust into a young, you're a young person in the situation, you're thrust with adversity. You have a brilliant artist that's on the top of his game. Similarly to myself in the beginning of this podcast with my story with Jerry, you think your career is over, similarly how I think, <laughs> and you realize in the end that Buddy Hackett, and if he were alive today, he would say, I love George Shapiro. I tested him, but I loved him, and he always delivered for me. And under pressure, you delivered, you made it happen, and I think that's what everybody needs to know how important that is in that, this business. Also, the thing I like about the story is uh, the power of comedy. Uh, when someone is that funny, you know, you, it's like falling in love with the, with the wrong person, you know, because I, I just, uh, when you're laughing like that, it's like it's close to being in love. And it's uh, something that you feel so passionately and so deeply. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, 
give you all the great special guests and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So you so you start moving up in William Morris, you start packaging all these shows, you become like very strong there. You're packaging these shows, you're doing these specials, you're becoming oh. very successful. Oh yes, and it and was, then it was you, fun. And then you decide to leave at some of the, at like the highest point you were at the company. How come? Uh, 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 thank you, Bernie Brillstein. No, it was well. Part of it was what I I, I mentioned before, uh, going into management. <clears throat> You, Bernie bla- blazed the trail. Bernie, he went into production with people of his clients, and uh, it was. I loved the idea of producing. I loved the idea of working with less people that you cared about. That was that was one of the big things. I think, as I said, you're responsible for 200 people. Some of them you don't like to work with. You you don't have belief in. And when you become a manager, and I had I had a, a wonderful time, and there some great people. I mean, I. Working with the Smothers Brothers, you know, for th- for three years, packaging the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour was one of the great highlights of my career. It was an incredible, innovative show. Uh, one of the uh, things that happened on that show was the Beatles uh, recorded uh, Hey Jude in their studio. Uh, and they sent us the film to be telecast. And it was like uh, the... Like, the first music video they sent it to Tommy Smothers and we got we all got it during a dress rehearsal uh, we the whole it was a cast and crew and everybody watched it on the monitors they played Hey Jude everyone was holding each other and swaying back and forth to Hey Jude the first time it was ever seen and that was telecast that that week and that that those kind of experience were phenomenal you know working as an agent uh, and especially with Tommy and Dickie because uh, their creativity was explosive and it was a, an incredible fun working with them. Rob Reiner and Bob Einstein and Steve Martin were on the writing staff w- when they started. That's a whole other story with Steve Martin where, when uh, uh, that's a whole other story. I have so many stories. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, uh, but, but you, what, in answer to your question, I, I felt it was time. I, I was like 40 years old and I said, okay, what am I going to do for the next 25, 30 years? Am I going to continue doing the same thing as an agent or break off and do something else and something I felt a passion for? And it was being a manager and a producer, especially producing things I would love and uh, working with less people and and people that I could really uh, love being connected to. So that that was a, that's an answer to your question. But you you know at the time you're not making a lot of money. Howard wasn't making a lot of money. You have to open an office, and then you have to convince uh, artists who are already paying ten percent of the agency to be managed and pay an extra percentage to you. And you're starting from zero zero with nothing. How Ooh, did, I never thought of that. How did you have the guts Ooh. to be able to do that? <laughs> And how did you start convincing people to pay extra money to have a manager who didn't have a manager? Uh, well, I, I had a, such a very close relationship with a lot of the the people, and uh, it, it just uh, it was never questioned. You know, the the additional they, like Dick Clare and Jenna McMahon who created the you know they worked on Carol Burnett, 
and they created Mama's Family and a, a Square Pegs, a few, a few uh, shows. You know, they, they it didn't seem to be a problem. They, they, I didn't have that problem. They, they just wanted to be with me, which was, which, which was great. And we started off very, you know, at the beginning we didn't make our salary, of course, when you start a new business. But then, you know, we signed Howard, you know, signed Marty Feldman, and we was uh, almost immediately uh, producing his movies, thanks to Howard and the relationship with Marty. And for those of you who don't know, once you start producing on a movie or a television show, this is what's a great thing for artists, is that they get to have you as a producer, and the entity that's deficiting the project, whether it be a television show or a network, or a studio, or a movie studio, right. pays the salary of the producing people. So, and therefore, it's true today, and I'm sure it was true then, the artist didn't have to pay a commission to their manager. So they were thrilled because they could have their manager fighting for them with the creative issues and what needed to be done during that time to help them move the rock up the hill and... They got their services for free. Exactly correct. Barry Katz is very knowledgeable. And, 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 and it just worked that beautifully, you know, with all the things we produced, you know, with Andy Kaufman and Carl Reiner and, and the movies we produced and uh, Seinfeld. You know, we, uh, we, we received a separate salary, separate uh, profit participation. And it worked out great for all, all of these and all the specials that we did. <clears throat> so anyway, it was, I think it was a very good move. Howard who was a, a great, great creative businessman. So he was more comfortable at William Morris at a big agency like that. I was more of a maverick, you know, and uh, wanted to be working with clients on an intimate basis. So it took Howard. I left in August. I didn't even wait for my bonus. You know, usually the bonus is in December at the end of the year. I said, I, I just, once I made up my mind, I had to just uh, bolt, you know, and I did it. And then uh, Howard waited until December, and I, I, I was hoping he would, he would. Be, I needed a business affairs guy, like Bernie Brillstein always needed a, a business affairs guy, you know, because we just love working with clients, the creativity of it. And I was hoping Howard would come with me, and he had a tough decision, but he decided to, uh, to, to come with me, and we started our business, which he doesn't regret right now, because uh, Seinfeld was quite successful. We had a nice run with that. And as I said in the, the, the Bliss Awards, I said, Howard said we're soon going to be seeing profit money from Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, in answer to your question, I just had a passion to be in my own business and to follow Bernie Brillstein's path because it just seemed so compatible to my soul to do that. Work with fewer people, produce things that you believed in. And it led to, you know, doing other productions like things I cherish, like the two Bronx Boys uh, documentaries that both were award-winning documentaries and, and done with love. And now the next one could be the Bronx Boys at 85, staying alive. <laughs> the last one was the Bronx. We did that. at The, the one that when we were 80, we went to the Santa Monica Pier, I told you. Uh, so I thought maybe if we get the rights to staying alive, we could all get bell bottoms and walk along uh, Venice boardwalk to the music and then dance a little bit to staying alive. Oh. Fantastic. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, six degrees of separation. 
there's so many things that I would love to talk to you about, but I think that what I'm going to do in the last part of this is do something a little bit different and take a little more time with this because you have such a history. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to mention a name of somebody. And if you could just say a few words that you feel about them and maybe... A like quick, love them, hate them? No, could no, be that no. Quick. Anything that they did that related to you and maybe there might be some kind of story that means something to you about that person maybe some kind of short or quick story that that happened with them that moved you and or inspired you andy kaufman oh andy kaufman uh was it was it a crazy a crazy i call him a crazy treasure in my life uh i heard about andy kaufman's act from carl reiner because carl had seen him in at Catch a Rising Star in New York. I was out in California, so was Carl. But he had gone in uh, to New York with his wife, my aunt Estelle, and they came back and uh, happened to have lunch with Dick Van Dyke and Carl. This is the day after he came back and he told me about it. He saw this kid, Andy Kaufman. He said he never saw anything like it. Uh, he said it's such a crazy act. Part of it was foreign. Part of it was singing. Part of, and, and Carl, who has to, total audio recall, like did his act for me and, and Dick Van Dyke. It, it later led, led to Andy getting a, the Dick Van Dyke uh, variety hour. So anyway, so coincidentally, like later that day, I get a call from Bud Friedman. Because Carl said, you have to fly to New York. He was so excited. He said, you have to go tomorrow, you know. And, and uh, coincidentally, Bud Friedman called me and said, I'm flying this kid in from uh, the you know, improv uh, in New York out here to sh showcase him. I, I think you, you should see him. So that was a one-two punch. But I still had to love him. So I did go to the improv and I saw him. That was one of the scenes that was uh, depicted in, in Man on the Moon. Uh, and uh, I thought he was incredibly creative and crazy. Uh, I, I, I had to say I must meet him because I, he may be too crazy for me to manage because you don't want someone that's completely out of his mind. And I, and I, and I took him out to dinner and I, I found him very warm, very connected to his family. And then that, that part of my life and career was just, uh, in, in, incredibly, uh, a treasure in my life. It was so crazy. So many experiences with him getting thrown off taxi as, as Tony Clifton creating the Tony Clifton character. He got thrown off taxi when he did Tony Clifton because Jim Brooks, you know, and um, uh, the, the other producers just loved him. They saw him at the improv. Tony Clifton was the opening act. Andy Kaufman was the star. And they wanted him as Latka. Naturally, they wanted Andy Kaufman as, as Latka. And uh, when they came on, Ed, Ed Weinberger said, we have to have him. And uh, I said... And I spoke to Andy. He said that these guys are great. They did the Mary Tyler Moore show. They're fantastic producers. He said, well, I don't really want, I want to create my own material, not, not do a sitcom. So I said, this could give you an, the opportunity, you know, to, to make enough money to put really put great productions on. And uh, these guys are very unique. So he said, I'll do it only if uh, Tony Clifton gets four episodes out of the by. They offered him 22 episodes. He said, I, I'll do 14. And if Tony Cliff, they offered Tony Clifton 14, I'll do it. So we have two separate contracts. I have the paperwork in my office for two separate contracts, two separate dressing rooms, two separate parking places. <laughs> and I uh, had to explain it to the Paramount executives that I was dealing with in business affairs. <laughs> so anyway, Dan Andy comes out of the gate like a hit. 
and the show's a hit. It's a huge hit, great rave reviews. So they, uh, he does about four episodes, and then it's it's uh, it's the Tony Clifton's chance, and they created a character called Nick De Palma, Dan, you know Danny DeVito's characters, Louis De Palma's brother, who's a a gambler, ne'er do well gambler. So they, he, he comes down, he gets the Winnebago bigger than Judd Hirsch's himself, and he comes down with two hookers, you know, and he brings them down to the reading, one on each knee, and he starts reading the script, Tony Clifton. He says, okay, okay, bullshit, 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 my line, bullshit, 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 my line. And, 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 and they, they read the script, funny script, and then he goes back to the trailer, and uh, I, I go back because they rehearse for a couple of days, I get a call. Like uh, the third day, Ed Weinberg says it's not working out with Tony Clifton. Part of my negotiation was that if they fire Tony Clifton, Andy has an out clause to leave the show. I covered that because I knew how passionate he was about Tony and that they could easily get out of the deal if they uh, fire Tony. So he said, Ed Weinberg said, we have to fire him. First of all, he's not. he's been drinking. Andy doesn't drink, but he's been drinking Jack Daniels. He's here with the two beautiful hookers. And uh, he said it's not working out. We have to fire him. I said, you know, he has an out clause. It's, it's Andy's call if you fire him. And he said, well, please talk to Andy. So I talked to Andy and I said, I said, okay, uh, they, they could fire me only if they do it at the run through and the full network is there and the uh, studio, everyone from Paramount, everyone from ABC is there. It's in front of everybody. And he had a, there was a reporter that was following Andy's career and he was in the audience also. So they fire him. You know, he does the schedules that we have to let you go. And he says, what are you talking about? I have a contract. Where's Shapiro? Shapiro. And I have this recorded, by the way. I had a tape recorder. I recorded all this stuff, which I gave to the writers, you know, Larry Kazuski and Scott Alexander. And they threw him out. They threw him off. He said, I got to go to my trailer. No, they, they just threw him off. And uh, the, the, the natal cedar, Bill natal cedar was taking pictures they confiscated his camera, but Bob Zamuda and I able to get it back. So, to, so he gets thrown off the lot, and uh, Tony Clifton is fired. And I meet him at the Nicodell restaurant. We met. I said, "I'll meet you there later." He's outside at the Nicodell. His makeup is off already, and he's on the street. He's almost bouncing up and down. He said, "George, this is the greatest day of my life. This is the best day of my career. This is theater of the street. I love it." He was exuberant. You know, about being fired. And Andy, you know, carried on and uh, had a great five-year run. And then they uh, did all these college dates and had a great career. But that was uh, that was Andy. There's no one more unique than him. Wow. Steve Martin. Oh. Okay, Steve Martin. As I said, I met, I met Steve when he was, I guess he was around 21 or 22 years old, when he was a writer on the staff of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. You know, when... Uh, Bob Einstein and, and Rob Reiner, and, and the all young writers on the staff. And as I said, this was uh, one of the, the great experiences of my life. And, and so Steve was doing stand-up comedy besides writing. And he went to a place probably before you were born called The Horn on Santa Monica Boulevard. And that Jack Jones used to sing there. They had comedians and they had singers. I met Vicky Carr there. And... Uh, I had feelings for her, Vicky, because she was so cute and she sang so well. Oh, that's a I went off, I went astray there, Barry. Uh, okay. So, so Steve Martin did a stand-up, and I was with uh, an agent, uh, Elliot Wax, who was Steve's agent. You know, William Morris, you know, his writing agent and so forth. So Steve uh, did a stand-up, 
and he didn't get a lot of laughs. He had some clever stuff, but no one no one laughed except when he walked into the microphone with his nose and made a big, I don't know if that you can't hear that, but it made a big noise. With, and that got the biggest laugh. And uh, so, but, uh, you know, I, he was very likable. And then we, we met afterwards with, with Elliot and, 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 and Steve and me. And Elliot said, look, I think you should forget about doing stand-up comedy. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that you're a good writer. You have a clever mind. I said, just forget about stand-up comedy. You know, and uh, that was Elliot's advice to him. What did Steve say? Uh, you know, he he said, "Just I just want to continue because I I like it." He continued, you know. He but they, you know, he just went on record, you know, giving him advice, and he became like no, no bigger comic, uh, uh, doing you know huge, huge venues, huge venues, arenas, and uh, people dressed as him, the wild and crazy guy, and the, the white suit and the arrow in his head. And then Steve recently wrote a book, which is a treasure of anyone that cares about comedy. It was called Born Standing Up. Read that book. Run out. Go to Amazon. Read that book. Get that book. Listen to him. Listen to me. Read that book. Jerry Seinfeld said it was the best. Carl Reiner and Jerry Seinfeld both said it was the best book ever written on stand-up comedy. So every comedian should see that. And they also should see the documentary called Comedian. Never heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's ba- very Barry, Barry Katz co-starred in it <laughs> with me in, in my favorite scene. I love that scene. And uh, it, of course, it was totally honest and spontaneous. Orny Adams was a comedian that uh, was working with with Jerry. And, uh, he, you know, he has an ego. His ego got him in trouble. Very, very good, smart comedian and uh, got a lot of laughs. But he was sort of uh, egocentric and he talked too much. And uh, I know he may be listening to this, but you are talented and you are a good comedian. But uh, Barry gave him advice. He said, you know, you're funny. You should get on stage, do your stuff and then zip it. And it was just a great scene. He had a nice ponytail, which photographed quite well <laughs> in that scene. And and then he left the room and Orny looks at me. He said, are you going to let him talk to me that way? And I said, Orny, I could not refute what he said. I could not refute a word that he said. And that way, it was just fast, spontaneous, and honest. And I love that. We were in another, because I did the little cameos and, and uh, comedians of cars getting coffee. Yeah, I got to have and, a cameo. And you would, they were looking for, you know, Sugar Ray's house, uh, Michael Richards and Jerry. And, right. and then he went to Jay Moore's house. That's right. And I think you came out right. and they say, no, Sugar Ray doesn't live here. That's right. <laughs> and it was Jay Moore. That was hilarious. So we, 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 uh, we were, we were in a two, a movie together and a television show together. Six degrees of separation. Yeah. But I think, you know, what was interesting about that, that thing that you mentioned about the movie comedian, what happens when you do these things is that you do them and, and you don't realize, you know, you think things are staged maybe when you watch things or whatever, but it wasn't. I just walked in this dressing room. I didn't know there was a camera there. I didn't know there was anything until I walked in and it was there. But you just want to say what you want to say. And I said it and then I left and the producers sent me something saying I needed to sign this release form. And I said that I wouldn't sign the release form until I saw the footage. And <laughs> that's right. And so I saw the footage and what I saw was something extra that I wasn't privy to after I left, which was Orny Adams calling me a cocksucker. <laughs> 
And <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I, I and, and I told the producers, I'm not sure I want to do this. And they said, listen, if you want us to edit out him calling you that name, we'll do that for you. And I said, can you just give me the weekend to think about it? And I thought about it and I said, you know what? I don't want to be editing real life. It might be derogatory towards me, but I want them to see it, how it played out. And I think I owe that to Jerry and I owe that to George. And hopefully it might inspire some people along the way. And uh, and I guess it did. You know, also I supported you because of, uh, of being truthful. Yes, you that did. I said I could not refute what you said. Go do your stand-up comedy. Listen to you. <laughs> do your stand-up comedy and then zip it. You know, because he's very talented, very funny guy. And he, and he, you know, I have great respect for Barry Katz for, for his, his honesty about doing it. I have great respect for me because I was supportive of what I thought was right and the truth. Which is very hard to do when you're sitting across from a client and they want, they want your support. But sometimes I imagine the reason why you've represented Jerry for over 30 years is because you're not a yes person. That's right. You tell him like it is. And, and that's the kind of relationship for myself as a manager that we all dream of, that we can have that kind of relationship because I tell you something, and I'm not here with Jerry right now, but every artist has ups and downs, and every artist has times in the 30 years that you've worked together where it's impossible that in 30 years there isn't a time when he thought the world of you, and there isn't a time, a moment, a second, where he was like, you know what, what is George doing? I mean, what's going on here? This is this is a... I, I hire him to protect me and I don't feel safe right now. There has to be a time just like marriages where there's times that are low moments and there's times that are high moments and the testament of a great relationship and a great artist is an artist that doesn't do rash things when things aren't always going their way, doesn't, you know, look at the manager and say, you know what? I don't want you in my life anymore because this happened and they fight through it and they realize that the relationship is the key to the success and the long-term relationship is the key to what everybody looks for in life. And, and that kind of love that you have in stand up of the person doing it and the love that the artist has in you for seeing what you see in them what they see in you. Right. It's beautiful. V very well stated. Oh, and so Steve, Steve Martin, uh, uh, so he had, when he was writing the book, we were talking about uh, Born Standing Up, because he, he had called me to talk about a few things, including this, and I, I told him the story, and he's, he's more of a gentleman than me, because when he wrote it, because he remembered this very vividly when, when Elliot said that he should forget about doing stand-up. And, uh, but when he wrote it, he didn't use Elliot's name, but I did. But that was the truth. Elliot was a terrific agent. He was a packaging agent, had a wonderful mind, creative mind. But th this is, this is the truth. And this is, uh, you know, what Elliot said. And, but, uh, but I have great respect for Steve Martin because he didn't use Elliot's name when he referred to the incident when he worked at the horn that day, when he wrote his book, Born Standing Up, Please Get It If You Care About Comedy. Jim Carrey. Oh, my God. Jim Carrey. I met Jim Carrey when he was 19 years old. 
and he was doing stand-up at uh, the comedy store. Uh, 100% of his act was impressions, which he did very well. He did very well. But, you know, impressionists, for the most part, you know, hit a wall at a certain point. And he was doing it for a couple of years. And he had very, very early on, he got a good manager, Jimmy Miller. And because uh, I would have phenomenal. Manager. I, I would have loved to, to, you know, to sign him. He, he, he was uh, uh, Michael Keaton and him. I met, but they both had managers. I met him. You probably happened to you. Michael Where, Keaton was doing stand up at the time, too. Yes, that's when I saw him. And I, I, I saw him and he was sensational. Harry Columbia was sitting there because he had already just signed them to management. A very similar thing, you know, with Jimmy Miller. Uh, but I, I don't care because I, you know, I told you I fell, I fall in love. No, sometimes that happens. I as fall a in love sometimes. The, it's, it's not returned because they meet someone else. That happens. Yeah. I remember I saw Jimmy Fallon. He was he was from Albany, New York, and I saw him very early on, and I was like, my God, I, I love this guy. I love what he does. And I really wanted to work with him, and then I found out he had a just yeah. signed with a young manager. Yeah, so it's a ve very similar. And, uh, uh, so, uh, so he, so he, uh, went back to Canada. He wasn't, you know, didn't connect much. And, uh, he went back to Canada and they worked around Toronto and places like that. And then, then about maybe it was five, six, seven years later, he got in living color. Uh, he, he, in fact, he wasn't even known when he did in living color. He was called the white guy on the show because he was the only white guy on the show. You know, he played off as a bill, you know, the fireman. Um, and he was great. And then, and that's about the time, and, and I guess it might've been the first year or second year of In Living Color. And Andy passed away from cancer at the age of 35. And it was a huge tribute by the Long Beach uh, Museum, Long Beach Museum of Art. And they showed his videos and great tapes of, of what he did. And, and, and Jim Carrey came by with, uh, Jimmy Miller and he came over to me said, and then he, after we you know, saw the videos and the, the great reaction, and he just said, uh, you know, George, I just love Andy Kaufman. And this was nine years before we did the movie. And I said, you know, my dream, because I knew he was such a good impressionist, uh, so a good actor, my, my dream would have you play the role of Andy Kaufman in a movie about his life. So I went on record, you know, like nine years before he, you know, then he did the Ace Ventura and all these incredible movies, Truman Show. And uh, then we were casting. Mila, oh, have to. Before, when Danny DeVito called me, I was I was selling the thing. I was talking to Warner Brothers about the Andy Kaufman story, you know, the bio, do a movie. And Danny DeVito called me and said, I know you're talking to people about Andy Kaufman. He said, look, I have uh, Milos Forman interested. He saw Andy's act. He, he He's on board to direct the movie. So if we could do it together, you know, Shapiro West Production, Jersey Films, and uh, have a joint venture. And I said, we have Milos Forman. I mean, I said... Uh, that make it makes sense, and then he said, "And I'll play you." And then I said, "You know, Danny, I was thinking of Brad Pitt." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm a short guy, and then now people come over to me and say, "I didn't know you were so tall," because I'm still a, I'm, I'm a short guy, but I'm still a head taller than Danny DeVito. And 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 I said, "Danny, you have warmth, and you you're funny, so you could you you could play me." Tell our audience about probably one of the greatest hidden stories in casting regarding Jim Carrey and getting the role and who was 
his biggest competition, the only other guy up for the role of, of, of Andy Van, Kaufman, of, of, which of, was of, Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. I mean, Nicolas Cage, I think he did an audition tape. You know, Jim Carrey did a tape himself playing the con he learned he learned the conga drums he was incredible on the drums he just learned it and he we watched his video with nicholas cage tom hanks even talked about maybe doing it uh but what was incredible nicholas cage was the, with the main competition that is right you're very Mil knowledgeable and milos foreman was such a prestigious director Normally what happens if you're an agent or a manager and a guy calls and says, uh, hey, Jim, will you audition for this? It's like, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, pal, but uh, I've just had $500 million movies. I'm not auditioning. It's like that old story about Shelley Winters. The director says, hey, could you come in my office and audition? And she pulls two Academy Awards out of her bag and she slams them on his desk and says, that's my fucking audition. <laughs> so yeah. for Milos Foreman to ask Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey, who had, I think, $1,100 million movies yeah. under their belt, to actually put themselves on tape and audition, and they did... Yeah, it's just incredible. But talk about that. No, process. no. Well, well, we we sat in the room with Milos Forman and uh, and Danny and uh, and my partner Howard West, who co-produced it with me. And you know, there was uh, and I. This is something for me. You can imagine my emotions because I mentioned it to him nine years prior that if we did the movie, I would love to have him play Andy Kaufman. And uh, but when once we saw that tape, that that was over. I think that, that he Milos said yes, that's him. He didn't Andy's, I mean, he just got him down perfectly. Amazing. What We were shooting the scene in Carnegie Hall, which was actually the Los Angeles Theater, substituting for Carnegie Hall, and Andy's father had walked in from the upper balcony, and he was walking down, and Jim Carrey was on stage doing Mighty Mouse and then the conga drums, and Andy's father just broke down. The tears just rolled down his cheeks. He saw his son alive again on stage at the top level of his performance. They were doing that incredible show, you know, from Carnegie Hall, which is, you know, one of the, one of the reasons you go, I, I made my decision was, you know, that the show we produced in Carnegie Hall with Andy Kaufman was, was the one, another highlight of, of my life and my career, you know, doing that. And, uh, that was, uh, an amazing thing. And Jim, I just love Jim Carrey. I mean, and he does transcendental meditation, you know, he, you know, he started because of Andy Kaufman. I started because of Andy Kaufman, because he was doing it. And he, he had such a, a, in fact, that was part of my negotiation. That was another thing in the contract that he had two meditations, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. I had that in his movie contracts as well as taxi. And, uh, and so Jim did it because he wanted to be authentic to Andy. So he took up, Transcendental meditation when he knew he was getting the role, uh, and uh, and I did it because it just it, f it affected me that uh, he just sort of opened the door for me to do it. That's right. why I could, you know, go on uh, these uh, ten day road trips with with Jerry and feel very refreshed when I come back. John Candy. Oh my God, John Candy. Well, John Candy was um, you know Second City from uh, Toronto. I, I first met him when he did a, a touring show. I think Marty Short was in it. Um, there was a, a, a great, uh, great, great ensemble. Uh, and then he's one of the kindest, sweetest men, besides being um, amazingly funny and talented. Uh, and uh, when 
we did this movie called Summer Rental. Bernie Brillstein, God bless him, I love you, Bernie. Bernie Brillstein thought of uh, the idea of doing a movie about a fat guy on the beach who's at a, sort of out of place. Bernie was was a, a little overweight. He was very much overweight. In fact, when he once lost weight, he didn't look good. He looked much better with his belly. Um, although it wasn't the healthiest thing for him. Also, early on, he smoked too much. But anyhow, he he always felt out of place on the beach in his bathing suit. So he thought of this idea called uh, some, summer rental. And, uh, and Carl Reiner was on board to direct it. They wrote a really f wonderful, funny script. And John Candy did it. And he was a joy, an absolute joy to work with. He used to, every day was, was fun. He was so light on his feet. And Carl was uh, into Pritikin diets, you know, so, and he thought it would be very healthy for him and John to have the catering truck, have, have a healthy diet, low fat Pritikin diet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so they did that, you know. I guess it was lasted three or four weeks of a six week shoot in St. Petersburg, Florida. And then someone, one of the uh, caterers had the pastrami and they both smelt it and they fell off the wagon. They <laughs> fell off the wagon. They went for the hot dogs after that and the pastrami and all that food. And uh, the movie was was terrific and uh, it, was, it was a great experience. And John Candy is a treasure in the world of comedy. Absolutely. If you've never seen that movie or one of my favorites, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That was hilarious. Figure Steve. it out, get with it, and rent it. Or do whatever you have to do, download it. Carol Burnett. Oh, Carol Burnett. I I worked with Carol because uh, I was uh, working at the William Morris Agency at the time, and uh, I was selling talent to the Carol Burnett show. And uh, at that point... I had uh, signed Jim Carrey early. I mean, I'm sorry, I meant Jim Neighbors. I signed Jim Neighbors to the William Morris Agency, which was not an easy sign because I had a lot of resistance from upper level people because uh, he was uh, so country and uh, um, and he, he sang. I saw him at the Horns, the place. Uh, he had a better first night than uh, Steve Martin because he I talk like this and said I'm from Sylacauga, Alabama, and then he would sing Pagliacci like incredible. Spot on, brilliant opera singing Pagliacci. Oh, my papa, I yeah. remember. Yeah, he did that. And so I wanted to sign him, you know, to the William Morris Agency. And uh, I, I, I even brought him into a meeting. And uh, the upper, some of the upper executives said, you know, he's not he's very difficult to cast someone like him. And then they said, well, if I get him a job, get him started, uh, uh, would everyone be on board? And they, they said yes. So my friend Freddie Mock in the personal appearance department, I said, Freddie, I'm going to have him audition for Steve. Steve Allen was doing a syndicated show at the time. I said, if he gets that show, I need your support so we could sign Jim, Jim Neighbors to the office. So Jim auditioned for Steve Allen, and he loved him. He did all his comedy and the songs, and he got a one-week booking every night for one week. And so I, when I had uh, Fred Mock in my corner, we signed him to the office. And uh, then I sent this letter to, you know, to, to the people that were Danny Thomas and uh, producing uh, the Andy Griffith show. Uh, and uh, he, got the, he got the job of uh, Goma Pyle, which was one, one year on the show. Then I spun him off into Goma Pyle, USMC. And after after that was a hit, we did the the Jim Neighbors Variety Hour, which was uh, incredible. So that was uh, what was the question? 
No, that was your. Who did you ask me about? No, that's good. It's it's all good. No, but who did you ask me about? Well, we to asked, start this. I mean, it was. Uh, I believe we were starting with uh, Carol Burnett. Oh, it's Carol Burnett. Okay, that's what. See, he's he's smart. He's younger than me, so he remembers better. I no, always no. say when you get older, two things go, and there's only a pill for one of them. Yeah, that's right. That's funny. <laughs> Good. See, he was a stand-up comic. He probably could go back. That would be a great... If, if we could trigger your return to stand-up comedy on this show, your show, that would be great. Only if, and you'll, I man- promise, only if you'll manage I me. I will manage you only if it's pro bono. <laughs> a pro bono? Really? Yes, that's the only way I would do it. I am a Because I don't need the aggravation. <laughs> now, it's so funny because uh, I, was, I was just with David Letterman. You know, when we go way back from his his first or first time he worked at the comedy store, the time Jay Leno did, so we we know each other over the years, and he was in Man on the Moon also because we created the scene with Jerry Lawler, with him. So we we and Jerry just did the Pally Center with him, wonderful thing talking about comedians and cars getting coffee, and we had a nice time, you know. And he had, David Letterman said, "Would you manage me?" I said, "Only if it's pro bono," <laughs> and he said, "I love George Shapiro." <laughs> wow, I can't believe I was mentioned in the same breath as uh, one of the kings. So anyway, so Jim Neighbors, I booked Jim. I booked Jim on the Carol Burnett show, her first show. Uh, first show, and she did 11 huge successful years. And and Jim Neighbors uh, was on every opening show for the 11 years. And Carol Burnett, as Carl Reiner says, and I second the motion, there's no one funnier. There's no no funnier person and and beautiful in her heart and soul. You know, every television show uh, gives the soul of the star of the show, reflects, I should say, reflects the soul of the star of the show. And there were some mean stars, as you know. And uh, she was total love and funny and what a great cast with Harvey Corman and Tim Conway. It was amazing. It was, see, that, that, these are the, this is why show business is so great that people that have a passion for it have to go for it. It's exhilarating and fun. And and in those days when they had all those variety shows, it was a different world of music and dancing. And there was like incredible energy and vitality when you walked into the studios. But I love Carol Burnett. I mean, Carl loves her more, but I love her maybe equal. Carl Reiner. Oh, Carl Reiner. He, I, he, he, Carl Reiner, he's really uh, the, one of the reasons, the main reason I got into this business because he knew, he, he knew the, the William Morris agency. So he, he con- connected me with uh, William Morris. He thought I would be good as, a, as an agent when I was, I was in the Army, when I was contemplating what I wanted to do when I was in the Army. Uh, when uh, I was 12 years old, Carl Reiner married my aunt Estelle who's a jazz singer and a beautiful, beautiful lady, my, my mom's younger sister. So, uh, and Carl, um, I used to go to the show of shows when I was young. Before Sid Caesar. I was, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was even when I was working, like as a lifeguard, that show was on. I used to go down to the tapings of the show, another reason to fall in love with show business. And when I was in the Army, um, I, I was home on leave, and he took me to, to Sid Caesar's swimming pool in Great Net, Long Island. He had a swimming pool uh, and a little golf course in the backyard. He had a, his own little private golf course, beautiful swimming pool, beautiful home. And he was brought up pretty much in uh, poverty. Sid Caesar was very – his family was very poor, struggling family. And I, I was a soldier, and I, I was in the swimming pool with him, and he just sort of leaned back, and he said – looked around, he said, this is better. 
And I just said, I just love this whole atmosphere. And then, you know, that's when I knew, no matter what my brother offered me to be a salesman, that I wanted to just go into show business. And uh, that's a, such a vivid scene. You know, he was so young and vital, had this uh, bodybuilder body, and uh, and it's so funny and wonderful. And uh, we had a, a great time. And uh, but and then and then Carl, you know, started. Uh, after the show of shows, he started doing movies, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, we just uh, had a had a great time working together. Uh, but but uh, Carl, his vitality is amazing. His creativity is amazing. Um, um, the Dick Van Dyke show was based on his life. Is inspired by his wife, who said, "You should write that." You're reading situation comedies that aren't at your level of writing. So he wrote 13 scripts, and he had he was had the starring role initially. And they did all westerns that year, and they didn't. The networks didn't pick up his version. He starred as Rob Petrie, and uh, and and that uh, wow. That, that we still have this. It's, it's in a museum, uh, you know, Paley Center. The original uh, video of uh, the pilot with that call did with Barbara Britton, played the Mary Tyler Moore role, and Morty Gunty. Uh, was in it so early on these things still happen to comedians today where you write something you have a vehicle for yourself yeah. and sometimes you can be replaced right and then another show business story Harry Kalsheim uh, who was an agent at William Carl's agent at William Morris Carl wrote 13 scripts when, when he did the show because he figured he'd have a scripts done in case he has to act in it he'd have the scripts written working hard 13 scripts he wrote on spec at uh, Fire Island on spec means he did it for free everybody exactly and uh, and then so Harry Carlson sent the scripts to Sheldon Leonard, who fell in love with it. And uh, Carl tells this story about, you know, get, get, we'll get a better actor than you to play you. And and he brought him to see Dick Van Dyke and, and, and Bye Bye Birdie. And Carl fell in love with Dick Van Dyke. And then he cast Mary Tyler Moore and the rest was history. And that show lives, lives today. It's all, it's all over today, 50 years, over 50 years later. One of my favorite shows. One more name. We'll get into the final questions. Okay. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> that talk about falling in love, right? Because uh, Jerry originally, uh, I found Jerry Seinfeld, and it was with the help of a young manager, one of our young people at our office, Jim Canchola, spotted him first at the comedy store. He saw him, and he he told me about Jerry, and I went to see Jerry, and uh, fell in love. He didn't move around the stage then; he was sort of stood behind the the microphone. He has just grown at the age of 60. He's flying over the stage like a 22-year-old, you know, and in those days he would just, you know, do the monologue and it's an incredible transition. So then I brought Howard West and then he, Howard loved his material. He had always had a following of comedians that had such respect for him that he always had three or four or five comics watching his set all the time because he was so well-respected. And if you are a comedian working today and you want to know if you're doing the right thing or not on stage, you can quantify that for the number of comedians that come into the room from outside the bar where they're trying to get laid and run in to see you perform. That's when you know you're doing the right thing. Right. They put your comedy ahead of getting laid and that's important in life. Then you know where your priorities are. You can always get laid later, especially if you're working comedy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, also Jerry, uh, he was dedicated, and one of the things is the perseverance, because uh, as I was 
talking earlier about the you know comedians always fearing bombing and so forth. So Jerry came back from Atlantic City once, came to the office. He did a two week gig in uh, in uh, it was Atlantic City, and uh, he did. He said he didn't get a laugh. He said I think he opened for might have been Vic Damone. <clears throat> You know, sometimes, especially in Atlantic City in those days, people came in buses, they saw the music act, and uh, they didn't pay attention to the comedian. And his mother and father were there to see him, and he said he didn't get one laugh, you know. He came back to the office. And and, uh, and so that's kind of discouraging for a comedian. But then he went to uh, Tempe, to the, you know, to the improv Tempe, and he just killed, went there, he just went back. You, you just swallow it. And and do it, and you be you're strong, uh, and it's the thing you talk about for perseverance, and you just have to want it. He knew that he wanted to be a comedian, and uh, another side story is that he's told his father when he was like 21 years old, uh, he uh, on a bench on, on Central Park West on 81st Street. This was a very special bench. And he told his father, and he was doing Arnold. Central Park and 81st Street, and that's that's where I had my first apartment in New York. That's where and his apartment was. I got apartment my first was, apartment near there because I had heard that he lived there, and I said to myself, I'm going to work on 57th Street and Broadway because <laughs> my mom always told me that's the place to work, and I want to live on the Upper West Side at 81st and Central Park West where Jerry resides because I know if he resides there, it's got to be hilarious. one of the best places. That's hilarious. It adds to the story. Yeah, because he was, uh, it wasn't on, it was 81st, that's where the bench was, but he, I think it was uh, like close to Amsterdam in 81st Street. By the Museum of Natural History. Yeah, yeah, he and George Wallace sh shared a, uh, an apartment together. And once someone broke in, they didn't go break through the door, the walls were so thin, they just broke through the walls, <laughs> and they took the stuff out that they wanted to take out. So anyway, Jerry told his uh, dad that he wanted to, you know, to be a stand-up comic, that's what he decided to be. His father was, was, was supportive. And he did that. Then jumped past the uh, nine years of success at the, uh, at the Seinfeld. And uh, Jack Welch, who was the head of GE, like the number one entrepreneur in the history of the United States, had a meeting. Asked Howard and I to come to a meeting with Jerry, you know, at his apartment on uh, the Trump Tower on Central Park West. And uh, this, is a, this was in Jack Welch's book. So... This is, I'm not revealing it for the first time, but they wanted Seinfeld. It was the number one show of comedy, drama, everything after nine years. And they wanted him for a 10th year. And uh, he, wrote, he wrote on a little slip of paper, $5 million per episode, 22 episodes. And he handed it to Jerry, giving him the firm offer right there in the apartment. And, uh, you know, Jerry, uh, you know, he, he felt he, he was at the top of his game. He felt very good. You know, he talked about ending the series after nine years. And uh, then would, he didn't give him an answer, you know, to give us some thought. And we went on a walk around Central Park, Howard and, uh, and Jerry and I. We sat on that bench, the same bench. And uh, Jerry said, I, I was rooting for him to, to end uh, like, uh, you know, to end at the top, you know, because it's so rare when you end as, as number one. At that time, Michael Jordan had he didn't come back to play for Washington, and John Elway just won two Super Bowls and he quit, and my and Michael Jordan had had quit at that time before he went back to play for Washington. So Jerry just said, he said, "Look, uh, 
my philosophy as a stand-up comic is to leave when you're getting that screaming standing ovation, which is what we have now. Instead of staying, uh, say, staying on stage 15 minutes too long and saying he was very good, but he was on a little long. So he came to that conclusion. Also, he was, you know, Larry David had left the show two years early to do his his movie. I think it was called Sour Grapes. So so Jerry was running the show, starring in the show. He, he was on his knees, you know, kind of exhausted. And also the timing, the timing was so great. And uh, so he told Howard and I that he said that this is, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll pass on this offer. Probably the most incredible offer in the history of comedy you know, $110 million. And that was in Welch's book. He, he wrote this exact scene in his book. So I was exuberant. Howard doubled over in pain because he said he's the businessman of our team. But he said, Jerry, that was his opening offer. <laughs> <laughs> his opening offer, Jerry. So Jerry, uh, Jerry left after nine years as the number one show, 75 million viewers, his picture, he got tired of his picture on all the magazines on every newsstand. But to me, I think that added to his uh, glow in doing stand-up comedy, selling out all these shows. Uh, the, the syndicate, we're in the fifth year of syndication of Seinfeld. It's on the turn of broadcasting to like 2021. He, he's, he, the web series is like a huge success with a great sponsor with Acura doing it for another two years. Uh, renewing for for two more years, and he did five just finishing five seasons, so uh, it it was an incredible run. And uh, the funny thing is, uh, one of my favorite letters that I wrote to Brandon Tartikoff, the youngest president in history of NBC, yes, and also brilliant because he, he programmed Seinfeld. But I had sent him a letter. I said, "This is when Jerry was still doing clubs. He didn't even do you know concerts and theaters yet." But he was work, doing his first show at Town Hall in New York. You know, the venue, small venue, about a thousand people. And I sent him this letter. I, and I said, Dear Brandon, call me a crazy guy, but I think Jerry Seinfeld will soon have a show on NBC. And I, I, get, gave, I enclosed People Magazine who did a nice couple of page spread on him as a, you know, emerging new comedian. And I said, uh, you're invited. And all the people in New York at NBC are invited. So I have that letter, which Jerry put in the, you know, letters of the century with all these politicians and world leaders. That little letter is in there. So it didn't. No one came to see him from NBC, but it triggered a meeting at NBC. So I'll bring him in for a meeting. It was you Rick know. Ludwin, wasn't it? Rick Ludwin's office. It was Rick Ludwin's office, and Brandon. And Rick came Ludwin down. was a late night guy. He was a late night specials and variety talk show guy. Yeah, he, but handled he was the Letterman guy who brought Jerry in. Right. So, so we had the meeting with with Brandon and uh, and Rick Ludwin's office, and Warren Littlefield was there, who was also uh, a future president of the network after Brandon. Right. So they talked about if you have an idea. You know, he said, I don't have any ideas, but I always wanted a meeting like this. But, uh, you know, they said, you know, they talked about maybe a talk show, a variety show, whatever. And then two days later, he was in New York, Catch a Rising Star, with, and Larry was also on the bill doing stand-up comedy. And they were friends, and he talked to Larry about the fact that NBC's interested 
if we come up with an idea, if you have an idea, you know. And, and, and then they went around walking around supermarket, a Korean supermarket, making fun of the things. And got, then they had coffee at, at the end of the night. And they, kept, they just loved being together and talking. And, and Larry said, this should be the show. Two comics talking and uh, no, nothing big. And, and then uh, that was the pitch, except they, they didn't want two comics. So they had uh, George Costanza, who was in real estate or something. He had different jobs as they went along. And uh, so we pitched it to Brandon, you know, and uh, Warren Littlefield and Rick Ludwin. We went to Brandon's office. And one, this is a bit of advice for anyone who's pitching a comedy show. If there's a stand-up comic involved, let him do the pitch. Because the show wasn't exactly as it turned out, but Jerry got huge laughs. They knew they loved him. They loved his comedy. And then when we said, well, let's, let's move forward and do it. And then Howard, in his infinite wisdom, said, let's double check. We, this should be a pilot, not, not just the script. So we said, yeah, well, Brandon, this is a pilot commitment, right? This is we're not a script, is it? And I had written Brandon millions of letters about Jerry to keep him up to date. And he said, okay, it's a firm pilot commitment, and you don't have to send me any more letters, George. <laughs> and that was the last letter I did send to him. And, uh, Before he passed away. Yeah, and he, but he was the one that programmed it. And uh, he, it wasn't easy because he said, well, you know, does that, people care about four jo Jews running around New York City? You know, even though they weren't all Jewish. But anyway, but he programmed it. And, and Warren Littlefield gave it the time slot because the first three years we got terrible ratings. We was getting killed by Jake and the Fat Man and uh, Home Improvement. And then they, uh, this is the politics of uh, studios and uh, networks. Uh, Cheers was followed, uh, uh, you know, Cheers was the number one show. And I, Wings followed it, and they uh, both Paramount shows. So when uh, Ted Danson quit, they weren't obligated to put Wings behind it. Then they put Seinfeld behind it in 1993. The show was on like for four years with no ratings. And then it exploded. The, the reruns outrated Cheers and it became the number one show because Ted Danson quit after 11 years. And I saw Ted at a party and I hugged him. He said, what's that for? I said, for quitting. That's we got the time slot because you quit. And then the, the rest is uh, television history. Last few questions. <clears throat> Your proudest moment in show business. Holy mackerel. Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, okay, well, this is, you know, you know. Besides, I mean, the obvious thing is is the, the you know the pride and being part of Seinfeld. I mean that that goes without saying. So so I have to put that 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 uh, aside. So many things, like Andy's performance in in Carnegie Hall that you know we produced and. Uh, but okay, the pre. I told you this little story about the, the Beatles and uh, Hey Jude. So I was at uh, I was at the White House because Jerry was invited for the Gershwin Award given to Paul McCartney, and uh, it, it had, you know great singers uh, was just you know Faith Hill was amazing. It, uh, Elvis Costello. I mean, Jerry was the only comic, and it was in the East Room. It's not a not a big place. But Jerry did great. He was hilarious. And then we had a little tiny after party and Paul McCartney was there. And I met Paul. And I loved Paul. I loved the Beatles from, from the beginning. And uh, I was able to tell Paul McCartney the story about Hey Jude, which Paul wrote. 
he wrote that for, for Julian when his, when, you know, his, his mother and father split up, you know, John Leno, you know, John Leno, John Lennon split and, uh, wrote it for Julian he, Lennon. He wrote it. He wrote it for Julian. It was, it's, yes, John Lennon. And I mean, McCartney wrote it because of the split up and he, he, to be supportive of Julian. And anyway, I told him the whole story about the, how excited we were. And we showed that first video and then uh, at the end of the evening, Paul McCartney hugged me. So that was a very proud moment because I, you know, spending time with, with the president and uh, at the White House and Michelle Obama and Jerry Seinfeld. And so that, that, that's, that's definitely up there. In fact, you know, Jerry keeps telling me to write a book, which I'm not going to do because I'm too busy living my life. They always ask me to, to write a book. And the chapter of that that chapter would be Paul McCartney hug me. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how did you rally around that and overcome to get to the next part of your career? My biggest disappointment in show business was my being portrayed by Danny DeVito. I love him and not Brad Pitt. No, that's kidding. <laughs> that, that one I'm kidding. Uh, I would say... I would I would say the biggest disappointment was was a was a a really heart heartfelt loss, and that's when Andy Kaufman died uh, at 35, you know, at the top of his game, and Cable was just emerging, and he had this concept that about the the wrestling and variety emporium, you know, where he would have a wrestle the women. And, and and have a variety show. It was it was with cable just emerging and all, all these other outlets for someone as bizarre as him. It would be a place where he would always find a home, and it was just so sad that uh, that he died at at thirty five and people didn't believe it. And uh, in fact, they didn't believe it when he died. I had a when uh, the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times were doing stories on him. They wanted to talk to me first to verify. They didn't want to print it. They thought it was a hoax. And that was part of the fun that he had with that. But that, you know, I would have loved to work with him for another 30 years, like like Jerry working. We, we got together in 1980. That's 30, 34 years Jerry and I have been together. And I and uh, Jerry saw Andy Kaufman before I did, <clears throat> you know, at, at uh, Catch a Rising Star and uh, The Improv. When he was a kid, of course, everyone talked about this comic. He bombed and he, he went off, you know, so, so bizarre that it gave a lot of comics the courage to go on stage because Andy was there. Thank you very much. Wow. That's incredible. Last question. What advice do you have for the young executive who has nothing and wants to figure out a way to, to build a business for themselves and to take it to the next level like you have? And also, what advice do you have for the young artist out there who's just starting and trying to take things to the next level to have the kind of career that Jerry has had or Carl Reiner has had or many of the artists that we mentioned today? Well, uh, there's no shortcut. And this is Jerry's philosophy. Uh, and, and there's no shortcut. You know, it's work. Like he tells young comics, a lot of young comics, you know, complain and they talk and then, and his advice is shut up and work. And I think it means totally dedicate yourself to what you want to do and, and, and not worry about rejection like Jerry. 
someone, a, a, a great thing is re- rejection is the, what fuels success. You have to take that rejection and be just be more determined and work your ass off. It's really working your ass off. And, uh, and it's, I've, I've done that. I did it from the beginning at, at, at William Morris and, uh, people get discouraged and, uh, that that's the best advice I could give is not 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 give up, and just keep working, keep working, keep working, and look ahead. As always, this has been industry standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.